Hello, this is Jonathan Zapp, and welcome to the first Steamcast of Mutant Mind Melds, Socratic Dialogues with Jonathan Zapp. And the mind meld aspect is not just between me and the guest, but is also intended to include you, the listener, as we seek to tap into the source code of the Babylon Matrix to catalyze individual and collective metamorphoses. And our first show is going to set the bar pretty high. Um, it was uh, recorded at uh, Palenque Norte, which is a, uh, a theme camp at Burning Man on August 31st, 2013. And the dialogue is between myself and Dr. Bruce Damer. And Dr. Bruce is an engineer and computer scientist who has designed 25 projects for NASA and is currently the chief designer for, of their asteroid mission. He's the president and CEO of Digital Space Corporation. And he was also one of Terence McKenna's closest friends and colleagues. They were about to go on a speaking tour together when Terence was diagnosed with his terminal brain tumor. And his CV just goes on and on. Uh, check his website for, for more of his amazing accomplishments. And so this is a very, was a very wide-ranging dialogue in which we covered many different subjects. I gave a, um, a partial list of them on the page associated with this talk. So check that out first if you want a preview. Otherwise, uh, we recording um, was a little bit flawed at the beginning uh, in that there was no intro, so it just sort of will break. It'll be a very hard edit, and then it's going to go straight into my uh, asking a question about when we might get another wave of novelty that would compare to the late 60s. So sorry for that uh, poor transition. But uh, I think you will enjoy the conversation. And here it is. I've always been asking myself, and of course Terrence did too, our late colleague, is when are we going to get another wave of novelty in as few years with as much cultural change as we got in the 60s? And of course we were helped by a number of things. <clears throat> One was demographics. I think went because of the fact that uh, there was a generation of young people that was a larger percentage of the population. It sort of gave them more psychic mass um, as compared to when they're, um, you know, a minority of, in, in the population um, or just statistically. Right, exactly. With higher obesity and all that kind of stuff. And then another interesting perspective on, on why there hasn't been another generation like the baby boomers of the 60s is... Um, I don't know if you're familiar with these guys, Strauss and Howell, and I think we lost Strauss, um, <clears throat> who wrote books like The Fourth Turning and Generations and so forth. I don't completely agree with everything they say, but I'm grateful to them because they got me thinking about generational differences and gave a way of, you know, d defining what some of those are. And so from their perspective, with their four-generation theory, the uh, present millennial generation basically correspond to what they call the GI generation and that are more community-oriented, but that um, every four generations you get a generation that has a great vision, and the baby boomers were, were, were that generation. Um, the previous iteration of it was like the generation of FDR and so forth. And so we may have to wait until we're in our 80s or something before we see another generation like that, if their theory holds out. I think that there's a... Just, I mean, it's a bubble, but walking around Burning Man, 
other festivals in Northern California, and certainly the San Francisco Bay Area, Southern Cal, the whole West Coast, and you know, going to these techie. So it's, I think there's another one brewing because what I've been visiting uh, all over the world, Pakistan, South America, Europe, Middle East, China, here, and I've been seeking out, wherever I've gone, I've sought out the collectives. So a collective generally is a super cheap rented art gallery space somewhere, people living upstairs, a bunch of incredibly cool inventors in the back, and they're sharing the facility and they're creating businesses. And there's one in San Francisco where the it was eleven guys in one loft, you know, given given the prices of things, the rent. So they all worked on three companies. One was a app company, which they hoped to make their millions. Uh, one was an I IT kind of a thing which was paying their bills, they were just doing IT work. And the third was a permaculture project, which was a do donated thing that felt, that gave them the feeling that they were working for some good and that they had their, their, their hand in something that was natural and they would go out into, they were creating a permaculture facility. I think it was a rooftop one in San Francisco. So these 11 guys were there and when one of their girlfriend got really sick, they're all supporting him. They only have two cars, one big cargo van and one zip car type thing. Bikes, all collectively shared. So their costs per person were carefully monitored all the way down to really low. I mean, for an individual living on their own in a flat in San Francisco, it was almost 10 times what their living costs were as a collective. And so this chronic unemployment in youth from Italy, you know, to Ithaca to uh, you know everywhere in the world, it, they're forming these collectives. It's a new form of intentional community, but it's tied into the global network. It's tied into economic sources, and they're super pro. And these these they're super talented, technically talented, creatively talented, um, and they're very open. It's an incredible open culture, and that gives me tremendous. In, in, in any city, any small town or city, you can find these things. And my goodness, I mean, that, that's a force. That's a force that's more powerful, I think, than, than previous generations have mustered, these collectives. Yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're exactly right. I mean, what I was going to say is that I think that there's a slow burn kind of revolution going on. Okay. And it is, about, it. it is about hermetic circles. It's different than the 60s where we weren't supposed to trust anyone over 30. Uh, because it's much more multi-generational. And that's also one of the things that Strauss and Howell pointed out about the millennials, is that they may actually want to live in the same town as their parents. Um, what I found from younger generations, especially millennials, is being very welcomed, um, despite being several decades older. Um, they, they seem to want to be more inclusive. Of course, the Rainbow Gathering was always this way, which was a big part of the festival scene for me. Another thing you, you mentioned is that that's a big factor with scenes is it's very hard to have scenes because they get the area gets gentrified i used to live in the east village when it was like the punk capital of the universe but then i was paying 350 dollars a month for a railroad flat apartment and there were people who were you know um crashing you know derelict buildings and all that kind of stuff but um now you know the 
that same building has got like million dollar you know condos yeah, in it and that kind of stuff. They're in Astoria, Queens. Right, they keep moving around the city. You know, now East Brooklyn suddenly looks like, which used to be wall to wall heroin addicts a few years ago, uh, now looks like the East Village did back in the eighties. But the, but soon the rents there will skyrocket, and they'll have to keep forever being fugitives. But <clears throat> uh, so the revolution may not be as explosive, but. Um, some of the slow burn things that are super powerful are, of course, the internet, and um, <clears throat> there, there's uh, a lot of different groups of people here and there that are that are looking to do things that are more sustainable than what happened in the '60s. One of the problems with all those communes, and a person who wrote very poignantly about them, it was sort of a coffee table book, but with a substantial amount of text and images was Peter Simon. He was the brother of Carly Simon, and he took a lot of iconic photographs of rock stars that he was able to meet through his famous sister. But he was very much a part of the commune movement, and he writes very poignantly about the commune he tried to set up. And what really broke it down for a lot of people is that they had an ideology of free love, but when suddenly the ideology met the reality of the young woman or man that they you know, particularly cared about sleeping with somebody else, they found that their actual psychology didn't match up with the ideology. And I think that that's been a problem that's haunted utopianism that has a long history in general, is that there tends to be an underestimation of the shadow side of human psychology. And what's underestimated, and this goes with models for schools too, is that people tend to think that the model and the ideology trumps the actual individual personalities that are plugged into that model, which actually matters much more from my perspective. And so <clears throat> that's been a flaw in, in some of these attempts at intentional communities. But it seems like now people are coming up with new ideas. Somehow what I thought was like cynically was like impossible. People do seem to be making it work. And I've, I've seen some great things happening with intentional communities. Here's one for you. Um, in my podcast, which is you know, called The Levity Zone, uh, one of the voices in there is a fellow named Dr. R.P. Kaushik. He was lost to history. His, he, he only spoke for about nine years in the 70s, around you know, contemporary of Krishnamurti, sort of later Krishnamurti. But I was sent a collection of uh, digitized cassettes, and I just found this guy so clear. He was never seeking, you know, audience or organization or movement. He was late in his career. He's a doctor in India, traveled around, and uh, one of, you know, he was in Ithaca, New York, in 1978, and talking about communities formed on ideas, and how no community formed on an idea can actually work. And he said, well. There's a place in India called Oroville, and of course, as in Oroville was just getting started, and he said they're already having problems because it's based on ideas, and now there's disputes over ideas and et cetera, et cetera. And he mentioned Ithaca, where they were, and said this town was formed with religious ideas, and in nowhere in this city can you see them in practice. It's no different than any other city in America. So is there a different basis upon which to form communities rather than conceptual ideas. Um, and it, it's, it may possibly be some kind of clarifying spiritual practice that we don't care what our community is about in terms of ideas. We care about how much eye contact we're making 
how much presence we're here, how much care is being done, uh, how much selfless selflessness there is, uh, you know, and, and how free we are from our own foibles and our own mental constructs and torments and things like that. And so you go to, there's a, there's a fellow who's a friend of mine who's here at Burning Man. His name is Gino Yu, and he's from Hong Kong. And he was uh, here in the tea house last night, and he worked with me for about four hours uh, to, and, you know, this is a practice he's developed, but it also comes from the Chinese traditions of total uh, presence. So he taught, he trained me over about four hours. It, it, it was quite an incredibly highly energized uh, activity. It was very difficult. And every time I would look away, you know, like you just looked away because you had a thought. Every time I looked away from his gaze, which was never-ending, open, inviting, smiling, severe, you know, all, all aspects. Every time I had a thought and I went like this, he would do his hand and bring me back so that I was still in tune. And then as I gradually started to not go away into thought, he said, now you're in the room start being present and hear what is going on. There's a beep there, there's a laughter there, etc. And notice something, that this is a delivered thing to us, and that things that happen when you're really fully present to the room will seem like coincidences, they're not. So, for example, I'm sitting there and becoming more and more fully present. Mine, as I just looked away from you, because I'm having a memory mind is not is, is is not taking over as much and I start having this breakthrough he says that's the beginning of what's called enlightenment that little crack starts to open up and then there was this cheer from down the street and he said you hear that and at one point we were talking about oh you know open or sex sexuality and then of course two seconds later somebody at the bar is talking about open relationships and then everything seems to be enmeshed in this fantastic synchronicities that just grow and grow and grow and then we he, then he took me out walking he said let's go through the world this way what what does your presence tell you to go not your mind and as we were walking along we were walking quite slowly in presence in, in this complete awareness some people would be zooming by and he said well that person's in their mind you can tell you can, you can tell even as they're far away you can tell their mind is on and there were some people that would slow down and turn around and come back to us or whatever saying, hey, what's up? He said, these are the people, and three or four people did this, what's up? Because these are the people who are tied into present, the present, the moment. And they connect, they, they'll immediately come in to people that are that way. Because so few people are. They're like, what's up? And we walked around the playa and it was just an amazing thing. And I'm thinking... If you started a community just based on that kind of a practice to liberate people from themselves and oh here's the other point he says there's if you're running your life through your mind then your motivations may only be you know why are you so driven like he's saying to me why are you so freaking driven and you have all these pro projects going what's really behind that it you know is it insecurity is it fear you know, 
or is is there joy driving those projects? And I really couldn't answer. It's like I just do these things because I feel I have to because I just I don't know. Um, and maybe it's a bit of fear. Maybe it's a bit of wanting to be accepted or recognized in some way. But he said, if you can get into this presence zone, then everything's sourced in joy. If you can open joy, if you can be present enough and enough and enough that something magical inside starts to happen to you, which is, it's good to be alive. It's just good to be alive. And then from that point comes action from just joy. So I said to him, well, why? Well, how? How can you get your laundry list done? All this other shit. And he says, look, when you're in this kind of energy state, which Gino is all the time, this guy runs the world uh, towards the Science of Consciousness conference. I mean, he, he hosted it at Hong Kong University several years ago. He's, he's a major dude. I mean, he's through the walls of you know academe and all that sort of stuff. And he's operating 24-7 in this state because I was gradually edging into that state and he would turn to me and say welcome to my world there's no time and then I went back to the question how do you get your bucket list done he said well um, it just flows things just appear there isn't there really isn't effort and we're not cycling things through mind and stuff like that but so I'm thinking you know if you based you said everyone, it doesn't matter what our community does, if we're operating from <clears throat> this kind of energy and clarity and just choose what you want. I mean, and I asked him, what, why spend all this time with me? Why, you know, the precious time here? Uh, he helped uh, another man who had a manic depressive, was having a manic breakdown. He sat with that man and taught him how to bring himself down out of a manic episode without meds. This guy's here now, and he's now has a technique he can bring himself out of his manic depression, which is a huge thing when you feel you have no control over your life. Um, I said, why, why do this? He says, because between you, know, you and me and everyone else in this state, this is how we change the world. This is the simplest. And this is a man who understands the power of the screen of virtual worlds, and he has a whole lab that does robotics, virtual worlds, etc., and, you know, the mesmer of that environment. And yet, he's able to have broken through, and the primate network has gone, not gotten dark for him. He's not constantly on his phone and constantly distracted. He's super engaged, and he's developed almost like total engagement and total presence. So it seems to me, and he didn't, uh, he didn't take psychedelics. He doesn't, you know, in fact, I was on some stimulant, pretty powerful, but when I encountered that energy, the stimulant that I was on, I could feel it, you know, reaching out through me, you know, not like this coca leaf, but, and it would get into that space of what we were doing, and it would just retract. It was just, it was, this was a more powerful space we would pull back into down the little rabbit hole, and I would, I would check and say, "Are you still down there?" I'll say, "Oh yeah," and I could, I could then close my eyes and go inward and let it work, do its magic down below. But the the energy space we were in 
with Gino was far more powerful. It was like a capstone. There was no way that the other could get into that space because, you know, you hear it about Mir Baba, you know, and Ramdas or Richard Alpert going to India and Mir Baba taking, you know, 900 micrograms of acid and then Ramdas going back and not thought maybe he threw it over his shoulder and Mir Baba putting the acid on his tongue one at a time and taking it again without ask without even talking to Ramdas because he he knew that Ramdas didn't believe that he took it the last time it didn't have any effect on Mir Baba not not any effect at all and now I understand why because I've encountered now this total presence energy in a human being and why you know the medicines they're just uh it's almost like they, they just don't have a presence. They don't have a job to do. There's nowhere they, nowhere they can op operate. No resistances. There's no resistance. So there's nothing for it to flow around and to flow around and create imagery and, you know, emotional ups and downs and stuff. There's no resistance in that kind of a person. It's just, it probably just disperses like oil on water and just goes, you know, just disperses and feeds the system, but it, it's it's not taken up by anything. So that's probably the, the limits of, of psychedelics in, in that type of environment. So perhaps, again, I'm just blabbing on here, but if you could base a world on that kind of presence, you know, that, and it seems to me, having gone through this with, with Gino, that you could... It's not complicated. This is not a lifetime of meditation. It's not. It just happened. It started happening just sitting with him. Simple, simple, simple. This is direct. So, anyway, that's a long, long answer to a short question. Uh, no, but it's uh, extremely rich material. And <clears throat> I've got a few thoughts about it. I mean, one is that, and this is just sort of the most obvious thing, and it's throughout the I Ching and in any kind of depth psychology is that we're talking about community, we're talking about interpersonal relationships. The foundation is the intrapsychic relationship. You get your relationship to yourself right, your relationships to other people, to community, to sex time, money, power, career, objects, technology are all going to be as good as they possibly can be. On the other hand, conversely, omit, neglect, or distort any part of your relationship to yourself all those other relationships are diminished, skewed, distorted, etc. So that is the foundation, and that's why it says in the I Ching hexagram 37 family that you know you, you, the first relationship is with yourself, then the next unit is the family, and then you start getting up to governments and so forth. But each they're kind of like nested holons or something that you know if you don't get the first one right, your relationship to yourself, then all the other ones um, are, are distorted. But then we're, um, and also this is be in response later maybe to some of your, your, your talk yesterday about the, the power of the individual mutant, like, like this gentleman that you, you hung out with. But when you get a hermetic circle, when you get a group of mutants together, it, it can change the world. Like an and it, yeah, I mean, the Burning Man community. Exactly. Right. I mean, like an, a good example is Impressionism. You basically had a, a handful of people. With, uh, Monet was really like the, the central personality. 
they all knew each other, they were having affairs with each other, and they started to develop a whole new way of seeing that then changed culture everywhere forever, and it was really one group of people, and I think maybe the pre-Raphaelites were like that, I mean, there have been the Bloomberg group, there have been these, a lot of software innovations come out of a hermetic circle of people in a startup or whatever. Exactly. And, but you know, the whole thing about um, community came to me almost uh, reluctantly and in the compensatory way of the unconscious because <clears throat> I'm, I'm not a person, I, I'm more the, the introvert and the one-on-one -on -one person. Other people have that social sense of like how a whole group of people is doing and how to bring them all together and are the perfect host of the party and so forth. And that's a skill set that's not natural to my essence. Put in that role, I could fake it for a while. But so, so I'm not confident in my personal inspirations as far as social engineering and bringing a group together. However, it seems like people are creating um, amazing new forms. For me, it had to come almost from the unconscious. And I'll give you an example of how this theme of community has come up through synchronicity and as just a theme that is poignant and... Um, charged with, with psychic energy and numinosity out there in the collective right now. This must have been like um, eight or nine years ago, I decided I didn't have ever really have a problem with, with weed. I've always been able to discipline myself with that, but <clears throat> for whatever reasons, I decided I would do a six-month fast on it. But it wasn't going to be an absolute fast because I didn't really have that much of a problem, so if somebody offered me some, I could still have it. But I was also in a relatively solitary phase, so that wasn't expected and didn't happen all that often at that phase. So the first person that um, offered it to me was maybe a 19-year-old guy. And as soon as he, he smoked me out, basically, apropos of nothing we'd been talking about before, and with much more feeling in his voice, he, he talked about how his longing for intentional community and that that's what he was going to research. <coughs> well, in that um, six-month period, two more times I was smoked out. In each case, exactly the same thing happened. Absolutely nothing before we picked up the bowl or whatever related to this topic, but as soon as they like took that first inhalation, they just came out with this and with tremendous poignant feeling about their, their longing for that. And then in a, um, a fantasy epic I've been working on since the 80s called Parallel Journeys, it, it, I always found when I, when I looked for a setting for like the young mutants, you know, that would break the evolutionary mold to come forth, it always, it turned out to be in my imagination, but in a way that I had no choice about a small intentional community in the green mountains of Vermont. And then there was, there's just been, it'd be too much to get into here, but um, a whole huge chain of synchronicities and, and where that's almost sort of happened in real life for me of meeting kids from those kind of communities and, and finding something exceptional going on there so there seems to be something to that and and to where it really would begin with um individual people and communicating differently like i've suggested the following experiment to a number of people that i think could help bring something like this about and it's a very simple one what it is is that a few people who have a very high rapport and level of communication with each other some kind of hermetic circle would go out on a wilderness adventure in which there would be no what Terence called small mouth noises. There'd be no talking at all. And um, <clears throat> they would say hike for three or four days under those conditions. 
And then everybody would separate and do like a three-day solo. And there could be different variations of this. So now you have no social contact. And also, like, they did this in Outward Bound, where I did like a 23-day Outward Bound class. Then they put you in a three-day solo. I had the most socially immersive experience in my life because you're living and hiking and struggling and under the same weather and stars and eating the same food with the same group of people. It's like being a hunter-gatherer tribe suddenly for, for somebody growing up in the Bronx for 23 days. It st we started with strangers, but the bond was incredible. And then when that reached you know, you know, uh, uh, an incredible bond, then everybody is separated and put on a three-day solo in which you're fasting. And that was a pretty traumatic water fast because at that point we'd been hiking 18 miles a day and our bodies were used to eating 6,000 calories a day. So it was really more difficult than a five-day water fast I once did. And then you're reconnected with the group. So you have that alchemical thing of juxtaposition of opposites that potentiates something. And what this experiment is trying to do is to potentiate linguistic intentionality, but without the conventional modality of it, small mouth noises, being available. So then one of those people who's on the solo, um, or maybe by some other prior arrangement, has built a sweat lodge. Okay, so now when people reconfirm, uh, converge or whatever, without talking again, they're going to go into the sweat lodge, take an entheogen of some sort, maybe ayahuasca or something, it's going to be boundary dissolving, and again with no talking, and now we've kind of, because they had a very high rapport to begin with, we've, we've potentiated um, linguistic intentionality, because so much psychological content will have unfolded for them individually in the solo and then in the sweat lodge which is also boundary dissolving because of the heat, you know, the, the envelope of skin doesn't separate you from the environment when you're in a cold world. Maybe this is why Terrence wanted to live in Hawaii when you're in the tropics and ambient temperature and body temperature are more similar. It's boundary dissolving. And, and, and that would be a very powerful evolutionary crucible, I think, and a very simple experiment um, to pull off. It seems, it seems like, you know, one of the things... When I moved to, to, to Prague in 1990, we were setting up a software lab um, in the former Eastern Europe, and just barely former. There were no restaurants. There was uh, beer was eight cents a glass. You know, it was a good time, but a challenging time. Heavy coal smog. No tourists or anything. So we set up a lab in an old villa and we had to do all the construction ourselves and everything. But what we decided to do, so there was these nuclear science institutes that were f closing from the Cold War, physicists and computer scientists flooding out of the machinery of the Eastern Bloc. And we picked them up. We picked the best guys. But what we did was instead of just willy-nilly piling random people into our office, our lab, was we, we said no. We realize we're in a culturally new territory here because <clears throat> just just doing an analysis of the society, you had those who were old enough to have been affected by the terror of post of post World War II Stalinism. And those people had tremendous damage in them. Tremendous damage. There were those who cooperated with the police state. You know, when Americans talk about the coming of police states and everything, I just, you know, 
like in the talk yesterday, I go, oh, please. Because they haven't... It's ridiculous. Um, because the terror that was emplaced on after... Uh, um, well, you know, you know how how this was Im imposed. It was a plan. So before the Wehrmacht mar marched in, marched across Eastern Europe, Poland, and Czech Czechoslovakia, and places like that, the Stalin ordered all the Communist Party leaders to pull out in the head of the Nazis, and they were pulled out to go to some camp east of the Urals. Let's talk about long-range planning here. Because Stalin thought that the Nazis would, you know, spend themselves in the steppe, the Russian steppe at winter, which they did, uh, with a little help from the Western, the Western world. But this is making it a longer story. But there was this, this, the, the, the leader of the Communist Party, Clement Gottwald. This is how, if you want to make a, a new form of community and you want to engineer a society, this is techniques to do it. You know, we feel helpless that we can't do it. Well. Here's people who could. Clement Gottwald stood up in the Czechoslovak parliament, which was a democratic country, and said, I am going to Russia to learn how to kill you. And then they were all withdrawn, and when they came back in 1946-47, there was a, a, a pooch, and they came in, and what they did, the first thing they did was came on the radio and said, you know, because Russia was a, had been the liberator, pretty much, and they were in popular standing, and they were Slavs, you know, the new Slavic Europe. And he said, turn in all your collaborators, uh, inspirators in the war. Turn in all your murderers, blah de blah de blah So people actually named and they identified all these people within their societies. Guess what? that became the the substratum of the leadership they needed those people the murderers the nazi collaborator they became the police force and the murderers in the government and the local bosses all of the criminal elements all the worst criminal elements that was part of the training in the urals so there when when i arrived in prague there was this whole okay you know, I read, there was only a single book about the history of Czechoslovakia, and it went up to 1945 and it ended. But I read that. There were no other history books. And then I talked to lots of people. I talked to people who had been imprisoned in uranium mines. This guy that survived with his limbs intact and his life intact, one of the few that had been put in, in, in the 50s. Because the uranium supply for the atomic warheads for the Eastern Bloc came mostly from Czechoslovakia. And they mined it with, with hydrochloric acid bleaching. It was really nasty. There's a whole area that's a moonscape of highly irradiated. So there were the, the damaged people. Then I met secret police people who'd been part of the system. Totally different personality. But in their eyes, you could see in their eyes this sense of despair and hopelessness of the crimes that they had been involved in. Then there was a segment of the society, it was really fascinating to, to come across a society that was this crystallized. There was a segment of the society that had been brought up long enough to get kind of screwed up by the workplace and the mandatory army service. Then there were the kids who 
were just out of their mandatory army service and they were pure and clean and just absolutely fantastic. So we had to hire a mix of them. But what we did to build our community there, a community of work, but it became kind of like a family. It was the first software company in the that part of the Eastern Bloc. We were pretty early. We had to bribe all these people to build our phone, our internet network, 1991. It was a whole, there's a whole, there's a million stories about that. And the rave scene arrived in Prague. It was really quite interesting. You know, the 1991, 92, 93, in communist bunkers, real bunkers. Really great scenes, abandoned bank buildings and stuff like that. So what we did is screenings. We allowed everyone in the company to screen an individual who was a candidate to work there. And they were given a computer to take home, which was a big deal, because there were virtually no computers there, and to do a very quite tough technical project. The technical project didn't matter. It was how they interacted at the Monday meetings. It was how they were as human beings. And the we allowed, we empowered, we allowed the teams of the Czechoslovaks to say no or yes to a candidate. And initially, this was beyond conception for them, that they would have power to pick someone or to say no, when their entire lives and the life of their nation had been put upon by external power, no choice, and you had to build a secret life. Here is they're being told, you, if you don't feel good about somebody, and there were people they felt squirrely about, and we rejected them, and as a result, the team was so clean, it was so incredibly clean, because over time, over two or three years, it, well, the lab grew to 65 people. You know, after I left, it, it, it grew to that size. It was only about 12 or 15 when I was there. They learned just spontaneously what made a good person in the community. So as the community grew and they added more members, they, they learned new things about what they would like to have in their community. They had the choice. But there was a screening period, and it would sometimes last three months or something, and initially unpaid because it was such a good position. Um, so that that was an example of building a community of work that was incredibly highly functional. I mean, they took my code base and ported it to Windows. I had built a complete graphical interface operating system from scratch that would run on a high-res screen on a personal computer, for the corporate space, and we had to get it onto Windows because Windows 3.0 had come out, and you know it was time. Windows 3.0 was full of bugs and crap like that compared to the system that I had written previous. So they cranked it out in three and a half years, four years as this team. Each and and it was just a it was a family thing. It was just an incredible thing, an experience of doing a community of work that way. So that kind of module could be inserted into an intentional community as well, that type of best practice. But allowing the members uh, full choice and, and asking them about their internal gut feeling about a person. Don't not just evaluate their coding skills or something. A gut feeling and measuring. You know, you probably have something to say about that as well. Well, I've got a, quite a few things to say. I mean, I think that that was a brilliant choice because one of the things that's been pointed out, I've, I've been doing some writing about psychopathy, and one of the things that's pointed out about psychopathy is that psychopaths embody everything that a modern human resources 
corporate person is looking for. They're decisive, they're charismatic, they don't hesitate, you know, they're ready, they're action-oriented, they are proactive, you know, all this kind of thing. And consequently, and it's been shown statistically even by the work by Robert Hare, who's the world's leading authority on psychopathy, that CEOs and Wall Street types are disproportionately much higher percentage of psychopaths, and they also create a what I call a culture of psychopathy that then infects other people. And that's brilliantly illustrated in um, the movie Wall Street. And, and my document on this is called Foxes and Reptiles, Psychopathy and the Financial Meltdown. And it gets the foxes and reptiles from movie Wall Street, where you have one classic psychopath, Gordon Gecko, who's named after a reptile. And he's the one who's constantly using the language of, of warfare and like lock and load. I want every orifice in his body flowing red. These are exact quotes. And, and, it, and they say of him, he had an ethical bypass at birth. Perfect definition of a psychopath. You know what does that center in the brain? It's for empathy that they lack. Right. Well, that, that's why psychopaths even look different on our functional MRI scans. If you show people emotionally upsetting images, the limbic system lights up for the average person. Maybe that's the area. But for psychopaths, just the linguistic centers light up. It's just to them, it's just a piece of information. So a psychopath scanning down a street is like overturned dumpster here, person writhing in agony over there. Oh, there's an AK-47 over there. I'll grab that. They don't have any, and that's why they're the, the perfect Iceman type that you want in your jet fighter because they have no um, hesitation and they will actually work better under pressure and, and they even have some positive qualities for certain jobs. But you, what, what I think you're talking about there is a kind of anantiodromia where, where there's um, this tendency to bounce between extremes. And this might be one of the few, that's a term Heraclitus came up with and that Jung used a lot. And, and because we've had such profound experiences of the most acute and sadistic alienation that it almost potentiates a drive toward a, a complete rediscovery of community. In fact, uh, the Fractal Planet talk that I was planning we didn't do uh, because we couldn't get. Uh, we were going to do sound. We we're going to, you know, this is telling Michael. We we're going to do backing tracks, live performance, and then I was going to do these the ten points, ten ideal outcomes for the year 2050. If you could, and it's in the <clears throat> Levity's own podcast. But we were going to try to do it live, and it just didn't work. So I just went into something spontaneous at the last minute for that talk which I think came out okay, and, you know, probably better than a scripted thing. But those ten points included, um, you know, the ob there was the obvious things. So the ten points were, just imagine an ideal world. Don't, don't imagine methods to get there or pathways. Just imagine, you know, ten ideal outcomes, etc., etc. And so one of them was one-third to one-fifth of the current population. Now, the only prescription I gave of how you got there comes from our friend Terence. When when the mushrooms spoke to him, he claims the only time he ever listened to the, the mushroom or the only time the mushroom ever gave him a piece of advice that actually, you know, he passed on or understood was, you must procreate only once, you know, one child per couple. And within several generations, your population is plummeted and the resources, the pressure's off of all the resource systems. But one of the ten items was, not only did, had we nailed early childhood 
development, we had characterized uh, psychopathy, sociopathy so well that you know, like a the whole world became like uh, like Denmark, with enormous societal resources focused on healthy children. We'd even identified this, you know, mutation or whatever developmental issue of psychopathy or sociopathy, just as we are now doing it for ADHD or maybe wrongly in some cases, and that we had basically put these kids on a path uh, that's different, that has extra resources, That, and frankly, if you lack the empathy part of your brain, why should you be piloting an organization where a lot of people are dependent, their lives and livelihoods are dependent? If you're a air, commercial airliner pilot and you can't pass a basic, one of these psych tests like George W. Bush couldn't pass, why should we have, you know, you're not allowed to fly that aircraft. So if you can't, if you, if you have this quality of your brain, it's like having, you know, poor vision, certain jobs you can't do. It's just a, it's a disqualifier for these jobs, period. Now, of course, the that type of personality is very valuable still to society but we gotta get smart about this you know because the, the the evidence i mean it's grim for this kind of leadership and the carnage that it has produced and rot yeah i mean it it, it definitely raises uh, some ethical questions but we may have already invented a way to screen psychopaths I mean, I would be up for an amendment to the Constitution where before you could be a, a politician above the level of dog catcher that you have that test because psychopathy has, has been damaging human society since forever. I mean, when, when Terrence would, talk, would quote uh, the James Joyce <coughs> character, uh, and what's his literary alter ego, Stephen Dedalus, is saying, <clears throat> history is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awaken. Well, it is psychopaths that are largely responsible for that nightmare and um, you know one of the things about what what happened in Stalinism uh, that raises some real questions is that a lot of it was I think there's a kind of X factor with the human evil that hasn't been fully understood like for example one of the things that the KGB would classically do is um, because so many people sent to the gulag weren't really any problem for the state even for, for all their control agenda they were just completely innocent victims. And what they would sometimes do before denouncing somebody is a couple of KGB guys in plain clothes would sit at the bar, buy him drinks all night, pretend like they're his best friends, and then suddenly when he's completely, you know, feeling that warm alcohol buzz of camaraderie and all that kind of stuff, then they would suddenly denounce him and drag him off. Completely unnecessary, unless there's a, an aspect that actually wants to feed off of terror. And so I have a whole thing, it's a vast can of worms called uh, the mind parasite hypothesis that, that, you know, that there's forces that harvest negative emotions and that actually want to. What would you comment on the Mayan, the great human sacrifice of those civilizations? Because that seems like one of the great, uh, somebody, uh, we were out at a, one of these huge dubstep stages, the one with the curving parts here on the playa, and it was massively impressive i mean more impressive than our friends over at fractal planet have done this this enormous thing i didn't even think it would get operational 
this week, but the screens are like 45, 50 feet tall, and the DJ and everybody are way the heck up. And it's like so powerful. And I asked my friend, I said, are this, is this the most powerful performative space in human history? You know, are we building the most powerful performative space? And she said, this is impressive, but there was one that beat it, um, which was, you know, the step pyramids, the sacrifice at the top, the blood running down, the priests lined up, probably all well lit. So that was impressive, you know, on a completely dark energy. But is the question of that? Well, I was touring the Mayan ruins with my close friend John Major Jenkins. You might have heard of him. Uh, Terence wrote the introduction to his book, Maya Cosmogenesis 2012. And I, I kind of I met John through Terence in 1996. And John and I have written something about that called Mutant Convergence, about how, you know, how the three of us converged. Um, <clears throat> so when I was touring... Um, the Mayan ruins, it was a particular day at Chichen Itza, and I had been kind of underwhelmed. There was so much touristy stuff going on in the town around it, and, you know, um, plastic, you know, step pyramids and all that kind of stuff. But then as we approached, I started to have an experience related to what I call the mind parasites. And it came like it sometimes does with a definite periodicity, as if there were like a stinging going on, you know, where, you know, the, these grotesque and, and, um, frightening and horrifying images uh, started uh, penetrating my psyche. And it, it made me wonder, I wrote about this in something on my website called Vision at Chichen Itza, if maybe that they had, that their idea was to propitiate these parasitic forces by giving them a sacrifice. And one of the things about the whole ball game thing and so forth is that it was considered a privilege apparently to be one of the ones sacrificed. But there was still a very dark and creepy vibe. Um, and, you know, that darkness and that bloodlust keeps resurfacing. I mean, like, here's another example of it in Western culture. For something like 2,000 years, the best doctors and medical uh, um, practitioners of the West were bleeding everybody and putting parasites on them and so forth. It wasn't until, like, the 1850s when some, like, British physician underpaid in a public hospital who didn't go to the finest university said did the first double blind study and he's like well you know because this all came from a, a Roman medical philosopher named Galen the idea of humors and you had these fluids so when you know now we talk about somebody's phlegmatic it's an adjective but when, when Shakespeare uses it that was an actual Elizabethan medical di diagnosis and so he decided to do the first double blind study gave half the patients soup and bed rest, and the other half he bled them like he was told he was supposed to, and the ones with just the soup and bed rest did better. But many of the most famous people in history were bled to death, and, and it, you can have an occult interpretation of it. George Washington, for example, was a hale and hearty 68-year-old guy, went out for a winter horseback ride, came back with like a, a winter cold, and his doctor like relieved him of over the next couple of days of like 11 pints of blood. His last words were to his doctor, and he said, uh, pray, take no more trouble about me, just let me go. So what was all that bloodletting about? Because it was, it, nobody even noticed that it didn't actually work. And so this bloodlust thing that turns up in serial killers, and it turns up in 
fantasy and, and certain horror novels and vampire novels and so forth is a very interesting question. And um, but we you know we have a lot of people who um, if anybody wants to know what a real police police state is, by the way, I just want to recommend the the East German film The Lives of Others to find out what the Stasi is really like because you know something that we can join forces on because it's an, maybe another form of fear porn and spreading negative emotions is the whole conspiracy meme that's so exaggerated. Terence called them epistemological cartoons. And you hear people say, we live in a police state, or you have Alex Jones on the radio and talking about, we live in a police state. If you live in a police state, you don't need somebody on the radio to tell you that. You'll personally know 20 people that were taken away in the middle of the night. Right, exactly. I mean, I remember in the days after 9-11, because I've been writing about this in documents like reality testing is politically incorrect. I was listening to NPR radio show and there are all these callers calling up and they were saying like the mass media is just in total lockdown mode. No truth. It's total censorship. None of them's getting through. Not a single one of them noticed that they were calling up a national NPR show. This is going out over the national airwaves from a organization that's partly government funded. But they're so sure that the mainstream media is all lies that they never notice that actually the urban legends they're getting from their conspiracy websites are far more inaccurate than um, what the mainstream media puts forward. And so this is a whole other subject. But when I would, um, oops, we got our. Is it? It's uh, still. It's still doing its thing. Yep. Uh, I guess it is. Um, Flying in and out of this country, you know, especially when you meet sort of the West Coast cultural bubble, you know, I was in first in Eastern Europe, then traveling a lot to Europe and then the Middle East and China and uh, now to Pakistan a lot. So you get to compare, you know, it's. I think pretty much anybody who's in that kind of froth is someone who doesn't go outside the bubble of the United States the or does but never connects with the local culture. When we were kids in Canada, we were given a choice at school. Go for an exchange to the USSR or go to the U.S. So I said, you know, the kids that are going, and you're 13 years old, the kids that are going to the Soviet Union, they want to just get drunk, really drunk, you know, and go to a hockey game at the Dynamos in Lenin Stadium and be drunk or something, something silly like that. And I thought it's going to be a interesting but kind of gray and whatnot. So I decided to go to Sunnyvale, California on exchange, which led me to this love affair with the Bay Area and wanting to go back there. But the kids could compare notes. So the idea was to compare notes between the USSR, which is on one side of Canada. Canada is the second biggest country geographically. Our friends, the Russian, the USSR. Canada was totally allied with Cuba, but part of NATO, part of all our early warning stuff. And then looking with our lawn chairs facing south to the United States and formerly part of the French Empire for a short period of time and the British Empire forever, part of the Commonwealth, and a multicultural society modeled after Scandinavia, you know, and or Northern Europe. So it's an interesting perspective. So 
the bubble of non-reality that was in the Soviet Union was created by propaganda. People pretty much knew better, and they had their stash of books, and they could tweak their shortwave radio to get out and really get some news if they dared. In the United States, the bubble of non-reality was created en masse by the entire population, from the lowest blob up, you know, up to the top. There was no propaganda ministry, and yet it was a clearly a country's under the sway of ridiculous ideas. And I, I've been curious about that ever since. No propaganda ministry, just done by the society itself to itself, whether it be a... And then it sort of it hit me that the United States wasn't a nation, wasn't a country at all. It was an emergent phenomenon based upon push and shove of, of interests. And then you go back and you look at the founding fathers and the, the colonies that decided not to join the 13 colonies and went back to Canada, and their reasoning was, this seems pretty crazy, you know. They're going to get all these guys in a room, and they are and they're, tend to be the wealthy guys, and blah, 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 and we want to stay part of a bigger system. So Nova Scotia, I think it was Nova Scotia, and New Brunswick said, no, no thank you. You know, we're not, we're not joining. So then you had this thing that goes on, and I think this is in 1806 when Thomas Jefferson left office that year. Uh, he went through his letters, and he started writing responses, kind of like Ringo Starr going through 20 million <laughs> letters. <laughs> He's still writing back to all these people from the 60s. Um, and one of the letters was, why did it take such an effort to do the constitutional there was the Constitutional Congress, and then there was a second meeting. They finally nailed the Constitution in 18, 1791, something like that. And he wrote back, because we realized that we were a nation at that, that time, or at this time, of self-interested persons, entirely focused on our own you know, and selfish gain, our own lands, etc., and that by, you know, twist of history, we're because of a common enemy, and only because of a common enemy, we could actually get together and do something. And we just happened to decide to do it without a king, and try to, you know, embody new concepts. But that we are still uh, a prey to this tendency, and that he had strongly advocated for a constitutional convention mandatory every two to three generations to look at the document, look at the how it's being applied, not amendments. Amendments was a was a, a compromise. He wanted a full-on convention. He said, I, I fear if we do not do this, then we, this will be co-opted, taken away by the same money and interests that built this place. Um, and And which is, of course, over time what's happened. Now, it's, what's interesting is Lawrence Lessig, who is someone that I've known for about 15 years or so, He's a was a sort of cyber lawyer. I met him at Computers Freedom and Privacy in 1997. I had a lunchtime session on avatars and virtual worlds. So this is the beginning of a... This is going somewhere, back to our discussion. And I showed avatars moving along on virtual landscapes and disputes over territory, disputes over hairstyles you know, and, and moot courts where I was served as judge. And, le and in that audience with five people was a man with round spectacles. 
is Lawrence Lessig. You know, it's one of the great liars of our time. He's Jefferson, a Jeffersonian character. So he was just carefully looking and taking notes. He came up to me afterwards. He was then in Chicago, the law school. He was moving to Harvard, to the Berkman Center for Society and the Internet Society. And he, um, he said, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I didn't know why. And he wrote his book, his first book called Code and Other Laws of Cyberspace. And on the third page, it talks about an avatar space, and it talks about there is property in cyberspace. Because at that time, John Perry Barlow, who I expect to see running around here, uh, look for him, he's often at Burning Man, um, he would argue there's only communication, there's only in relationship in cyberspace, there's no property. But what I showed Larry was real property in cyberspace. Now, what Larry went on, he went on to tilt at windmills, big windmills. He first fought the DMCA copyright extension all the way to the Supreme Court and lost, you know, where Disney had paid lobbyists to uh, get an extension so they could protect Mickey Mouse and basically tromp all over anyone else's rights for things going, you know, and, and over a... a, a the other founding father who established the, the patent and trademark system, uh, his intention, you know, the Supreme Court just says, well, I don't care what the intention of the writer of the law is, you know, here it is. So Larry left dejected from the court, but he established the Creative Commons, which is a huge uh, thing. I was one of the five launch sites for the Creative Commons in 2002, Digibarn, my computer collection, which has a huge amount of orphan works on it. Um, but what what Larry's done now is, he, because he's still a relatively young man, he's now tilted at the largest windmills, which is corruption in government, money corruption in, in government, which is the ultimate, the ultimate expression of Jefferson's concern, is that there's this enormous, is it K Street or E Street, community of characters who just basically by legislation. And there's even con conservative legislators who meet with wealthy foundations and others to actually craft model legislation to shove through states. It's, it's a totally, uh, you know, it's, it's an obscene abuse, absolutely obscene abuse, writing model laws and shoving them through. So Larry, what he did, wrote a book called Paradise, Lo uh, Paradise Lost, Republic Lost, about the prescriptions for how to regain democracy in the United States, which the United States hasn't really had a democracy ever in its history. You know, it's had large blocks of disenfranchised voters always, now enormous disenfranchisement through uh, money and lobby. So to actually have the United States experience democracy, and the only way to do it is to hold a constitutional convention. That's the only mechanical, logistical way. If 38 state legislatures vote for a convention, you have one. What comes out of the convention is the law of the land. doesn't matter if any sitting politicians are involved. doesn't matter at all. It just, it, you can rewrite the whole thing. And he held a conference on holding a constitutional convention at Harvard three years ago where he invited Tea Party people, um, you know, military people, no, no sitting politicians, people from the left, the Amy Goodmans of the world, 
had them all sit down. They all agreed. We need a constitutional convention. All these parties. He's an incredible person that can create a, you know, a, a, a mass agreement. He had, when they launched the Creative Commons, he had, was it Jack Valentine, the head of the Recording Industry Arts of America, on screen saying this is a good idea. The great litigator of all file sharing saying this is a good idea to have a, a license that clearly allows the artist to and amazing Larry bags this guy and initially when he was on the screen they were booing him but soon they said ah this is Larry at work so he does that and two years ago during Occupy the Occupy period I decided to sort of extend that and I wrote a piece on and this is very much like my world of 2050, picture the ideal outcome. Picture a constitutional convention opening, the day of its opening. Forget out, don't try to figure out how you got there. And what they do, what they would do in the first uh, week. And the convention would be through the Internet. It would be in halls all across the country. It would last for a month. Um, you could go down there in person. <clears throat> or you could be there online was the delegates were basically people who registered themselves to vote. And, you know, in uh, the rules of the convention were no sitting or previous politicians involved, period. No analysts, no policy people, no one from the current system. They're all excluded. Um, the first order of business, you know, the gavel comes down to vote to remove, to cut the umbilical cord of money from uh, money influencing politics is all gone. All those people who are lobbying are out of jobs. There's only a few thousand of them anyway. You know, good riddance. They're they're of no value. They're out of jobs. It's actually an illegal activity, so they have to cease immediately. Second order of business is to remove all sitting politicians federally, all of them, hundred percent, including the White House, President, everyone's gone, because as we know. The civil servants, the department heads, agency, people can completely run the government without a single sitting politician. They're really not necessary, at least for a year. It's no real necessary. They're all gone. They're all, they're given uh, pensions, not generous ones. Uh, then there's a prescription that no sitting or former politician can run again for office unless there's an enormous petition, a public petition in their support. So if you wanted to bring back your favorite guy, you could, but you had to make a major effort because individuals with large private, large uh, personal wealth are not allowed uh, to participate in the system. Uh, and then you go down the line. In fact, and I had friends in the Pentagon that I called because I'm friends. I'm in a think tank called the, well, one of them was called the Arling Institute. The other one's the Highlands Forum, which is a you know, couple-year annual meeting um, to help bring new information to the Pentagon and the Department of State. And really cool people, really incredible people. I trust them all with everything. Uh, Captain Dick O'Neill runs that. And I said to one of the guys, um, what about this Iraq war thing? We were in a meeting just before the Iraq war in 2003, and it was Andrew Marshall. Andrew Marshall is like the smartest guy in the Pentagon. He he ran the Rand Corporation in Santa Monica for all his years, and in '68 was this, was appointed by Richard Nixon to run the Office of Net Assessment, 
You won't find anything about him online. He was 85 years old at the time. He always reappointed. He's the man with the institutional knowledge. He's the man that opposed the Iraq operation vehemently in front of the Joint Chiefs. And what the Joint Chiefs told him and what we were told, we were also given uh, a version of the PowerPoint that they were given to justify the war. And I can tell you another story about that. It's really fascinating. It's a battle of PowerPoints. Um, and Andrew said, they, they said, we know you're right. We know this is going to be a mess. It's going to damage our agencies. It's going to uh, reduce our, you know, what their language was, uh, force projection ability. It's going to cause a generation of people going through our hospitals and our mental care facilities, trauma, and uh, really no nation-building strategy. It's going to be an absolute mess. It's going to be long-term, but we don't have a vote. So one of the things they recommended, you know, if I was drawing up this, that the armed forces, uh, they have a vote. If they don't vote for a military deployment, it doesn't happen. So simple things like that. But there would be many other things drawn from my Canadian background. We're going to create a civil society here. We're going to create, you know, blah, 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 health care. We're going to create early childhood, you know, health and education. We're going to way scale back our expenditures on the military. We're going to remove blah, 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 blah. So that, that's all... That's all online. Called it's called a radical remake of America, and and you know who picked it up? Conservative talk radio. So I ended up on. I almost. I, I could have ended up on Alex Jones actually, because Alex Jones loves the idea of a convention. But I was on conservative talk radio, and the people calling in. I mean, they were either it was either really scary people with a lot of very, uh, you know very scary messages or it was very sensible people with real sensible concerns um, but opening their minds to the fact that the system needs to be redone and we need to all get around the table and do it and if it's ordinary American ordinary citizens not the psychopaths not the media types all those people are excluded in fact media coverage might even be uh, might even be excluded from the convention. Who knows? I mean, you just never know. But, but an ideal outcome to remake the world, given that America's not a nation, it's emergent phenomena. So you have to deal with it as a set of emergent phenomena. This is no plan for this place. Like there is for Canada, where when I was 12 years old, the teacher announced, we are one of the chosen five cities in Canada to go metric as a test. So our town went metric the rest of the towns weren't and then the rest of the country did in a couple of years went metric everyone's fine with that it was kind of interesting and everyone's got got ready for it because there's a, a nation that acts as a nation and it has leadership that has a plan and people trust the institutions and they trust their they trust banks and they trust therefore things don't fail and you know it's in canada it's rare to have something really fail in government uh, procurements and stuff like that so here you go. Okay, well, um, strangely enough, I think that'll be a segue also into talking about one of the main memes or themes of your talk of yesterday, of mitochondrial Eve. Well, first, I want to support the, the Canadian idea. Um, not too long after 9-11, I guess it must have been 2002 or 
barely a year after 9-11, I went to live in BC for a couple of years. And pretty much as soon as I crossed the border uh, from Washington into BC, <clears throat> it felt like uh, an iron lid was taken off the top of my head. Like everything looked the same, but the feeling of sanity and calmness, the, the difference in zeitgeist was just remarkable. And uh, people, you know, need to look at some of those objective quality of life studies. People who, who just jingoistically say, you know, we're the greatest nation, you know, need to look at, do some of those comparisons to Scandinavian countries and, and Canada. But um, to create an even larger frame to what you're saying, uh, and going back to what Thomas Jefferson's idea of, like, revisiting the whole Constitution and, and realizing that, like, we're almost the definition of the patriarchy and the dominator societies is when a particular rule book or document comes to completely predominate and that can never be changed. I mean, that's how you get a fundamentalism. And <clears throat> this, this even relates to the mitochondrial Eve idea and, and of a return to the feminine. And I don't know if you ever saw a book called The Alphabet Versus the Goddess by Leonard Schlein. But I mean, I think this has got a lot to do with it, where, according to Leonard Schlein, where we made that switch that Rianne Eisler uh, wrote about in The Chalice and the Blade, and then, of course, Terence was very interested in. He had his stoned ape theory about what the trigger was for that. But um, <clears throat> when we switched from partnership societies that were identified with the iconic object, the chalice, a symbol of fertility and fecundity, and then to the dominator societies identified with the sword, and that became increasingly anti-feminine, like in the Mass of God, Joseph Campbell mapped this out, that you would start with a goddess-worshipping culture, then it would be a goddess with a male consort, then it would be a male god with a female sidekick, then it would be an all-male god, and women can no longer participate in religious rituals and so forth. It was this dramatic and unpleasant change. This is the nightmare of history that, you know, Stephen Dedalus is trying to, to wake up from. And it, according to Leonard Schlein, it seemed to be triggered by written alphabets. And, and this is one of the reasons, and this is where my work in Terence is most closely parallel, why we have tremendous cause for hope, because the hemispheric dominance that, that, that was caused by, apparent, may have been caused by written alphabets, where the left hemisphere, and we know that hemispheric lateralization is not quite this simple, but for purposes of conversation, that's about hierarchy and linearity and so forth, um, gets activated by written alphabets in the beginning was the word and suddenly a document becomes the ruling object It could be Hammurabi's code. It could be the Bible the Quran. It could be the DSM-5 the rule of law and um, <clears throat> and As they say, you know the law is a, a bludgeon not a rapier or a scalpel um, and, and so this text-based Society where there's a constitution or some document that can never be changed um, begins to become like uh, what O'Brien tells uh, the protagonist of 1984, Winston Smith, when the, when they're in room 111, that it, when O'Brien, uh, when Winston in his despair asked him, "What's your vision of the future?" and he said, "Just think of a human boot stepping on a human face forever," and often that boot would take the form of a document, the law just pounding you down, like the mandatory minimum drug sentences and things like that, where even if people on the right and left both agree that it's, it's stupid and evil and so forth, some kind of uh, um, horrible inertial momentum uh, keeps that, that going. So that's another perspective on, on the Jeffersonian 
idea of remaking things is uh, let's also like consider that maybe in, in addition to rewriting the document that maybe even going beyond documents at some point uh, might be helpful and and that all the visual technologies that are exploding right now may be the thing that's causing rates of violence to be dropping throughout the world we probably have the lowest per capita war death rate in thousands of years uh you know that ted talk where they right exactly that you know it rainforest tribes if you're a young man your your chances of dying in, in war are far greater than even during the bloodiest 20th century in the west um <clears throat> so we, we may be becoming feminized by our increasingly visual technologies, regardless of objectionable content. Um, Marshall McLuhan, uh, you know, that was a very big influence on Terence, said the medium is the message, but maybe especially neurologically. So even if you're playing a first-person shooter video game, you're still having a more bi-hemispheric experience than reading text. And a lot of the kids who, who, who play those games... Um, don't seem all that violent. I mean, some do, and if you get a psychopath or a school shooter who's usually being messed up by SSRIs, then they, they turn out to be very accurate shooters because of those games. But other kids, you know, when I ride the number four train in the Bronx and I see the kind of homeboys, the inner city kids that I used to teach in the 80s in the South Bronx, suddenly they seem like weirdly androgynous and chilled out. They seem a lot safer and... and Right, exactly. I mean, New York now has 400 homicides a year. When I was growing up there, 2,000 a year. There's been some, and you could feel it in the subways. It wasn't just a, a manipulated statistic or something. Um, there was um, a level of aggression that we just don't get today, and it started before 9-11. So um, one of the things I liked about your idea of the mitochondrial Eve, and, and another thing to support it, at least as a metaphor or a myth theme or something, is that all fetuses start out female, as I'm sure you know, but um, <clears throat> some evolutionary biologists say um, th there's kind of maybe a dark side to mitochondrial Eve because, you know, of course, we've all rejected the idea of, you know, Eve and the Garden of Eden story as, you know, as Terence described it, nature's first drug bust or something that, you know, of course, you need to eat from the trap tree of not good and evil. And, um, uh, uh, and of course, the the original sin idea is, is the most contemptible and extreme example of patriarchal psychosis imaginable. As Leonard Schlein puts it, imagine some third world kid who doesn't even, who's been so disadvantaged he doesn't even know right or wrong because Eve has not yet eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, stealing a piece of fruit from a fruit vendor, and now all Indians for all time will be punished because of that. And it even says in the Bible that, you know, God will bring you know, pain to your, her, the woman's labor because of the sin. But what's so interesting is that the reason why female human labor is more painful than for other mammals is directly because of evolution. It's because the cranium expanded. So it's an amazingly counter-evolutionary idea. On the other hand, if we really did all um, evolve from a certain mother and, and that that's when all the other hominids disappeared, like Neanderthals and so forth, Maybe this idea some evolutionary biologists have of pseudo-speciation means, means something where we may have killed off the other hominids. And so maybe this explains uh, racial antipathy, that unconsciously when we look at other race, races, even though we know from the definition of species we can mate and bear alive young, we, we pseudo-speciate and look at them as if they're competing species. I mean, you know, that sounds like the way the Nazis viewed the Jews and... and, and in, many other cases of extreme racism. 
But one of the things I do like about Mitochondrial Eve is the idea that a single mutant can change everything. And that's something, as much as I like groups and communities, sometimes it's a single individual. And, and we just see that all the time. I mean, for example, uh, Jimi Hendrix. You know, here's somebody born in a poor family, um, no special advantages, but because of his unique energetic signature, and when it comes to changing the collective psyche, and let's remember when we're concerned about things like environmental pollution, warfare, violence, these are 100% psychological products. Okay, you can superficially analyze all these economic trends. Money is a psychological artifact. It's like Jung said, there is no such thing in nature as a hydrogen bomb. That is all our doing. We are the great danger. Psyche is the great danger and the great possibility. And so sometimes it's not one man, one psychic vote. Okay, if you think about seven billion, you know, uh, MacBooks networked together, if, if, if 5,000 of them, or five, if 1 billion of them are all chanting Allah together, uh, they don't actually contain much information. But if even just one of those MacBooks has unique information, it affects the whole field of information. So if we have a Jimi Hendrix whose unique musical ideas and high vitality personality are able to create searing guitar chords, you know, he may have been dead for since the early 70s or something, and yet through earbuds and speakers across the whole planet, his music has never stopped reverberating. And that's an example of how a single mutant can change everything. And that, in fact, is one of the major themes of the singularity archetype that you see in many of the science fiction stories, is that a single mutant will alter everything. Exactly. Right, right, who is a very uncharismatic, homely-looking guy, but he's able to um, mind-pressure whole civilizations to change everything. Another example is in the um, Japanimation, you know, anime classic Akira, um, where you have a few mutants, and one is so powerful, Akira, that if you just think about this metaphorically and in terms of like the layers of the unconscious, that um, his few remaining cells have to be kept at absolute zero, like at, at 16 sub-basements down in like a giant high-tech bank vault um, in a military base in Neo-Tokyo because if a single cell reanimates, he threatens the whole military-industrial complex of Neo-Tokyo. And that's kind of the, the, one of the key aspects I call the mutant versus the machine, where a single sufficiently awake mutant is a threat to the whole military-industrial complex. Another classic example of this would be the Dune novels that I know Terrence loved, I'm sure you did too, Paul Atreides. You know, you have one 14-year-old kid, um, the Kwisatz Haderach, and he brings down a whole galactic imperium by his consciousness. Right. You have a hermetic circle of, of highly conscious mutants. They, they evolve more slowly than the Quetzalcoatl Haderach, and, and at one point they're trying to destroy Paul because he, he, they, they have that institutional conservatism. You know, he happened but a little bit before, before their thousand-year plan. Right, exactly. I mean, but the Quetzalcoatl Haderach had to be male by definition, but he, he happened a little too soon for them, and then it turned out that the mutant, be careful about creating mutants, had a different... Um, agenda than they did. But of course, they used entheogens um, and they brought on 
what I call homeogestalt. You know, the, the, they would take the water of life. It was a deadly, like, ordeal poison. Only the Bene Gesserit Reverend Mothers who could change that in their own bodies would survive that rite of initiation. Many didn't. And then they would become telepathically aware. It would, this is what I call homeogestalt, a term I got from the Ted, Ted Sturgeon, the t- science fiction writer. They would become aware of, networked with all the other Reverend Mothers who had similarly survived that rite, but without losing their individuality. And that was a key key aspect. But um, I know I'm going on for quite a while, but I, this is going to directly relate to um, y- your thing when you were talking about, you know, where s- males are still like the spear carriers. And um, let's talk about 2001 for a minute. Um, the, the, the astronaut that survives, his last name is Bowman. It's almost a synonym for spear carrier. Hmm. And he's still part of that whole military industrial complex. Yeah. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but if you remember that scene with the missing links, and then one of them at the end of that scene where he learns how to use a tool and to use this bone to club these like pig-like animals to death or whatever, and then triumphantly he, when he realizes and then he defeats another tribe of hominids you know, with this bone club, and then he tosses the bone club up in the air, and then in 1 24th of a second, 200,000 years of evolution are spliced out, and that bone becomes a spacecraft tumbling and moving in the sky, a very elegant-looking spacecraft. Well, originally... What Kubrick wanted, and of course Kubrick and one of the great, talk about a hermetic circle of two, you know, Kubrick and, and Arthur C. Clarke together, what a pair of geniuses. What, what, what they really wanted was for that to be, the original intention was that that was a nuclear satellite. But they decided that because Dr. Strangelove was so iconic and so associated with Stanley Kubrick that if they had another thing like that, it would just seem like, okay, you can't get off this idea. And they made it like a neutral spacecraft. But that was actually the direct continuation of the Bone Club was an orbiting nuclear satellite. And um, <clears throat> and so uh, that might be most of uh, what I had to say to catch up with that side of your talk. Let me pull that. Um, so here's, so the question I know you're, this is begging, is from, drawing from the ring that we're now sitting in at around the nine o'clock position, uh, we're sitting in a particularly mutant strain neighborhood around this tea house, and we're sitting in the speaker series for Palenque Norte, which had quite a number of mutants listening and talking, (laughs) Um, could there be assembled one or more hermetic circles, secret, you know, uh, by definition, you know, in this, even in this day and age, they should be somewhat secret uh, mutant uh, collectives to affect change, and not just affect change and you know, starting some natural products lightweight backpack company, which is really not really going to do the the picture, but doing something very big. I've got some ideas for a very big, very big change. It would happen very quickly, but are probably not appropriate for this podcast or this recording, however it's used. But is there, you know, an ability to do this, uh, to find... There's mutants that also have solid connections into the structure. They're not alienated outside and completely outside the wall, so they have a very distorted view 
you know they have an us versus them kind of thing um, so find create that and of course you probably know the history better than I do but these mutants that may have been the king's advisors in medieval Europe all having their conclave once a year saying well how are you influencing your king? Well, I'm influencing my king by... I'm worm-tongue and I do it by whispering uh, nasty things into my king's ear. And Well, I'm the conjurer and I'm the palace uh, idiot, so this is how I influence my kingdom. And they have their, you know, their conclave every year and their festival and this sort of thing. You know, it probably did exist. So can we create such a thing? And what what members would it have? These members would have to be extremely unwilling to have all this stuff splashed on Facebook and trivialized. It, they would have to be serious students of history. They would have to be serious objective people, not subject to um, you know, the whims of, of fashion and belief in various conspiracies and whatnot. They would have to have agency. They would have to be able to effect things. And they would have to think uh, not necessarily doing things just from their minds, but doing things from non-mental, you know, from energetic, you know, and not in a woo-woo new age thing, but making themselves like what well, we talked about, Gino you. That kind of an individual has a tremendous ability to act, and the world seems to act around him. And it does for us too, but because he's so present, the world just seems to pull in around him. So someone like that walking through the halls of some institution may be able to cut a, a swathe through that institution. You know, to some extent, I do that in a limited way when I go, you know, I put on a different skins, and here I'm wearing my Burning Man crazy garb, but I go into the halls of NASA, you know. And now, because I know the culture, I know their language, I know how to instantly being thought of as flaky so don't go there I can cut a sway through that organization to come up with new ideas and I don't care that I'm pushing a two-star general around I don't care anymore because not only I'm not getting funded anymore they're just having me come down there to help them design something I've no I have no skin in the game but I'm also very frustrated with them for making so little progress and being so unballsy and so timid in their design and their vision. So they've started to bring me back there. Uh, the same thing was that the Pentagon group, which is, there's our art car, the Cloud Nine uh, coming in. So all of that, you need a new kind of shamanism. And it was in my talk at Burning Man last year, I did a talk on global technic techno such and such shamanism where you go in between in these communities you 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 go I mean when I go to Pakistan I put on chapels and an, a Pashtun like I was wearing my Pashtun uh, shawl last night super warm it's perfect for this environment and I have a Pashtun rolled hat and I walk through the markets and I say well salam alaikum to people and I, I'm in their world, and I don't go to mosque, um, but I, I go everywhere, and, and we work with 200 people there. Um, we go into the tribal areas, we go into the northwest, 
uh, I speak at universities, not in the chuffles, not in the, the Pashtun, but I look like a Pashtun to them, perfectly. Um, I hear about their sacred ceremonies, their use of bung, which is a lot like chewing co coca leaf, but they're chewing hashish, and, and their, their dreams and their struggles against Wahhabism and against the crushing of Sufi Islam by this, the Walmart of Islam, they call it sort of the uh, male-dominated spacecraft. of. It's very much like the Padishah Emperor coming to Dune in his large craft and nukes are used and the Padishah Emperor is trying to be thrown off by these tribes. Um, so where I'm going with this is that those, those mutants should be able to, they should be embedded within, in some extent, within these power structures because they really know how to tweak them. So, but what is their goal? Their goal is to wait for openings. You, you cannot, you know, push a super tanker, but what you can do is if the two super tanker slows in a channel, you better get your tiny little tugboat out there on the bow and you can push a super tanker. It's the right time to do it. It's the right time. FDR did it with the New Deal and he really pushed that super tanker. You know, laws were changed after, you know, the craziness of 2008, you know, then subsequently watered down, but, you know, there's a fellow, uh, and it, it was, By the way, that's what Paul Atreides had was that prescience. He's only one 14-year-old kid, but he has this exquisite clairvoyant sense of timing. So he's able to sense that key joint, that key point of leverage by just one gesture sometimes or one act mm. to shift, create a domino effect that spreads throughout the galaxy. Yeah, and that, that to study that, study how that happens throughout history. And then, because your group is their hyper-present, really powerful individuals, they can set up the preconditions for those. You know, Adolf Hitler did it. The crystal knocked, everything like that. They set up all the, these fake murders and fake murders of party members, and they were very wise to it, to set up the crisis, to set up that tipping point where they can then push, push over. Very, very wise to that. And what they were wise to was something that you talked about yesterday, and it's another theme I want to pick up, which is stories. What they understood was how to create symbols and stories that would, they did it on the dark side of the force, obviously, but that what uh, drives people are these mytho mythological things. And if you can create mythological images, right now we have the black magicians of advertising doing that on a mm -hmm. deal, uh, ubiquitously. But if when we have people who are able to do this, um, because um, if you don't mind my... And I'll come back to... Um, yeah. Mitochondrial E, just before we run out of time and something, who knows what happens. Um, the Mitochondrial E story of yesterday is actually designed as one of those game changers. And it needs a lot of refinement. But I had a, we did a holotropic breathwork session in here in the morning before that I did my talk. And I saw a vision, a clear vision for how to turn the Mitochondrial Eve story session into a profoundly transformative session at the end. So you tell the story and you heard the story. And by the way, I can send you the entire recording of that. You can use that. Um, 
they made a really good quality recording in here off the board. Uh, Pez has that. I have my own handheld recording, but so what I what I saw so clearly in the holotropic breathwork session, which is you know you're just totally open as a bell and you get delivered, was we finished the story. The audience is into, they're in that space of that imagining. Then you form a circle. You you ask the audience if there are women who feel the power of mitochondrial Eve in them. And I, I did ask that, but I didn't do the following thing, which is to form the circle around that woman who wants to be mitochondrial Eve. And then music starts, and that music is very powerful, like we had in the breathwork session. And then that woman can express herself. What does it mean? And there could even be play-acting things where a man approaches, almost dressed like a warrior, a little bit of a scary, seductive type of figure. And she, expressing her power, decides how to handle him. Instead of acquiescing and doing things that women have done, perhaps, um, she goes, you know, oh, please. You know, or from the, the funny thing, she could push him back physically. They could have in a contact improv thing, and she could express the strength that she's pushing him back. She could push him back energetically. And acting that, after hearing that story, and acting that in a beautifully choreographed, I mean, there's a real human there. there there's a real real person who's experiencing that for the first the, the first time and it brings that alive in her and then you do it again and again and again and you create the sub foundation the sub basement of these powerful game-changing stories and then suddenly everywhere in the culture there are women who have feel the spirit in them they feel Eve in them and they have a practice and it's freaking powerful. And they research and they decide we're part of a game-changing event, which is the return of the female to the center. And we do this in our practice. And it all started with this story. And there's an example for you of, of how that could serve. And we can come up with a dozen or more really great stories that aren't woo-woo. They're not based in New Age woo-woo-y things. They're not conspiracy theory. They're... They have groundings in science. They have their hard-hitting and powerful stories. The the one that I told as the um, second talk at Sacred Spaces Village, which I can send you the recording for, was all about our deep ancestry. It's another story. The deep ancestry on the, the, the forest canopy, on limbs and trees in the forest canopy up to 90 million years ago. You know, because they found this this femur bone from a 55 million year old, the, the oldest primate slash monkey ancestor, common ancestor, 55 million. That probably means they were around at before the Chichlub impact. So what does that mean if that's our oldest ancestor? So this this following story I've been telling for about three months now. Did it WVC did it at a private event, and did it here, and it was well. We were insectivores. What do inse how do insectivores live today? They hunt insects. <laughs> they eat chew a lot of leaves, and they tend to suck down tree saps and stuff for sugars. So they have a burger, fries, and a shake diet. All right. And but what is the origin of the 
of everything we have today, it's that world. So here's an example. We have a ball of protoprimates. It's a huge kettle puddle. That's how insectivores live. They live in these clumps for safety, probably inside a tree. One of them, the teenage one, <laughs> breaks loose at dawn, sneaks out onto the tree limb because she sees a globule of nice sugary stuff to get high on, and she's starting to suck this down, looking back because she'll get busted if she takes the whole thing and somebody's seen it. It's supposed to be shared. but So she looks back, nobody's seeing her getting busted for getting... She looks forward and she sees this weird color pattern. And she's kind of sucking down her thing, looking, grooving out on the weird color pattern. That color pattern is a tree snake. That color pattern was evolved, co-evolved for tens of millions of years. And what's going on is there's a, a head of a tree snake under the branch, getting ready to come up and snap her down. And she has to, she has to break the trance of the pattern and understand what it is. So the end of that story is that if you roll the clock forward again, we'll wait till, so you don't have to do editing, we'll wait till uh, this is done. So rolling the clock forward. Yeah, we actually were really lucky here today because of the, we've been just lucked out sonically. It's incredible for the playa. So roll that clock forward. Guess what? And you still have people sucking down, getting high. We get high. We have a burger and shake diet. The pattern, we were one of the first animals to have binocular color vision in 3D. So the, the tree snake that was evolving had to use that to its advantage. But we are now, as a result, suckers for anything with screens, pixels, movies, blinky lights, patterns in, te in, in frescoes, everything. We're totally suckers for that. Why? Because of the training of that evolutionary, that snake. What is the snake? It's technology. So the serpent, and the serpent both, you know, is the thing we grok and we, we groove with, but it's the thing that eats our asses. It eats our prana, it eats our lives, it sucks down all the eye contact that we're losing the eye contact network is going away and and that snake is still with us so it's you know it's it's a different kind of origin story different kind of but it's also grounded in science and it makes you think so it, it's a metaphor I and mean, people talk about tech in other ways but if you talk about tech as this oh the serpent the snake is our ever-present thing, we just we have to ride the snake, you know, to quote Jim Morrison. We have to really learn how to ride that snake. And at the end of the talk I did on the mountaintop in Mendocino, this first version, I said, but understand, I am a snake charmer. You know, I'm a tech technologist. So it, it goes all ways, but that one sufficiently turned into something could be another game changer somewhere along the way. Um, one of the things that going into the esoteric realm I talk about is going to have a conversation with the planetary plant body. I call her the Madre. You'll hear a couple of the podcasts have the conversations with the Madre. You know, and 
one of the conversations I had with her was, Mother, your best laid plans with the monkey are going awry, and you don't know it because they're losing their primary communication network, which is eye gaze and deep presence. The presence is being stolen away. Their youth, their young are being trained to look at us, you know, to look four or five hundred times at a screen. No attention, no empathy, or the empathy's changed. It's different. It's abstracted, and the, you have a you have a a vicious competitor in the scene. And understand that if you were counting on these monkeys to get you to a new home, somewhere, because that's what life on the planet is pushing out to do, you got a serious competitor, and that competitor is the ladder. By which the monkey is also climbing and going to Mars, and carrying bacteria inside rovers. In this dream, I took her to Mars, and I had her put. I dropped the belly pan off of the discontinued rover, and had her put her hand on it, and she felt the life. About 13 strains of bacteria there, dormant, but they can't be ever removed. They're on Mars. They're just waiting around for enough moisture and whatever, which they won't get. Unless some incredible weirdness happens, but they're ready to culture and survive on Mars in the right conditions. Life is there; it's sitting there. It's some of her best creations: bacteria, you know, bags of DNA, and they're complex beings. They're sitting and waiting. They may be waiting in crustal materials too, you know, everywhere for all we know. So that meta, that story is nature. It reverses it. It says. Madre, we need your help. We need your insights, and in order to do that, we need to, if we're doing a ceremony, get out of the mode or move beyond, evolve beyond the mode of individuals sitting in their little slot doing their little personal processing, and say, "No, we have to get serious. If we're going to communicate with this power, we have to do it as a unit, as a group. Forget about processing your girlfriend and." Meeting your favorite flashy thing or whatever—that's a waste of the medicine. What medicine is left has been provided. Let's form the circle and the, open the pore to this power. Let's get serious about this thing, and then inform if there is a planetary noosphere, plant body. Inform it of the circumstance. Because it lives in a chemical world, it lives not in a world of symbols and things like that. It's an it's an entity, but something that's hard doesn't communicate in our language. And then wait for delivered answer. At least at least activate the whole system around this challenge. And all you have to do through the pour is feed the symbology of the snake on the tree branch and the little thing sucking down because it's part of that system. And then roll it forward and project the image of what that all became, so that that plant body understands, ah, that's the source of this. And who knows? I mean, maybe it's a shot in the dark, and this craziness. But we're mutants. We can do this shit. We we profess and some and pull shit off that science will never explain. And and some of these people like me are scientists who do this shit. You know, I don't care. I, don't, I do my reductionist sides. I do visioning sides. I do this 
kind of side. I don't care. I do it all. I don't see why you shouldn't do everything and be involved in everything. The, all these magisteria. So that's another potential story of, of that's a little bit different. Well, it was a fantastic riff on story. I've got quite a few things to, to add to it. And I think you started out talking about sort of different ways in which the change could happen. Um, like like the, the idea of the mutant seed, you know, the dissident thinker in a bureaucracy working from within, like, you know, some seed of radioactive mutagen or something that, that can change things from within, a seed crystal, whatever metaphor you want to use. Right, right, exactly. But somebody who stays within the system and, and works with it and inspires it. Um, the answer is a sort of vast all of the above and, and more than we can even think of. That, that it will not be just one model, it'll be a group of mutants who's, who run a startup. And, but at the same time that they run the startup and think about their finished product, they're also doing unique things socially with each other. So that they're they're learning to synergize and meld their minds as a group by, for example, I've thought about some software. I suggested it to Terrence, you know, when he wanted in 1996 when I was challenging his Time Wave 2000 thing because I could see the fudge factors in his thinking. I was like, well, Terrence, why not just have a website? It wouldn't be scientific where people could just rank how weird their day was and see if that corresponded to Time Wave 2000. Right, and, and, and um, well, I think to the Time Wave 2000, I think, was maybe the name of the software or something. But, um, <clears throat> but you know, you could have a group, a startup group, and where people were just ranking on software, their morale, their level of energy and enthusiasm, all this kind of stuff, and sharing it. So maybe even seeing a readout in your Google Glasses so that your, your sense of, where, of the, what's happening with the whole group in addition to the organic things of eye contact, is, is, is profoundly synergized. And maybe they're doing meditative retreats and they're doing other things together that are empowering them as a hermetic circle in addition to the content of what they're working on aiming toward a finished product so that the uh, form and the um, <clears throat> form and function flow, flow together in that way. But when we get into, into story, I think this is where... I personally think is one of the royal paths toward mutation and somebody wants to find stories as equipment for living. The British historian Arnold Toynbee, when he mapped the life cycle of civilizations, basically discovered that the real classic pattern was that when a civilization no longer had a ruling myth, it was in decline. So um, stories are absolutely, and, and myth, ruling mythologies are crucial to healthy civilizations. And, but personally, what I'd like to make a case for, and, and I think it, it will, uh, I'm going to make a, a strange case in just a couple of minutes of how fantasy stories and movies are um, part of the main line of evolution from the very beginning. The very beginning of life, from what I understand from cellular biologists, was when lipids could form some kind of a membrane. Because until you could have some kind of interiority, until there could be a membrane, then there was no chance of life because the contents of metabolism would just diffuse into the environment if there wasn't some container for it. So the growth of life is about interiority. And then when, um, as uh, Teilhard de Chardin pointed out, when cephalization started and there started to be an asymmetric de de deposition of nerve tissue, and you, know, um, you started to have some kind of inner simulacrum of the outside world inside, 
And then the Cambrian explosion, where we went from 544 million years ago with three phyla of life to 538 million years ago where there are 38, the same number as today. There's the light switch theory of Andrew Parker that it started with, with eyes. And I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's heavily disputed, but, um, <clears throat> But the growth of interiority, even in recent human evolution, like it's believed that up until the time of Homer, people weren't having private emotions. Like Homer marvels that Odysseus is like thinking one way or feeling one way and acting another. We just take duplicitousness for granted. And there was some friend of Augustine that like could read silently and that was seen as like a superhuman power. Like, you know, it's like he's reading out loud and his, right. Just to add to that, it's one of Terence's favorite stories. But if you watch a video of Terence, we were doing a, uh, a virtual world event at his house. As he's typing, Terence is mouthing the words. As he's as he's hunting pack typing into the virtual world, he's mouthing the words. So it's like kind of back on you, Terence, of uh, you'd be able to uh, the uh, friend of Augustine who's oh no, Saint Augustine was reading silently. Right, and one of the great, uh, speaking of reading, one of the great milestones in the in the exponentiation of novelty. I mean, you know, we, we have this depressing record of hunter-gatherer societies where you go back 50,000 years later, they're still making the same kind of flint axe compared to, you know, the exponential cultural novelty of the West. Well, one of the great milestones on that was the novel. Now, here's an artifact that so related to the word novelty. The idea that a monkey could create this extremely complex interiorized experience and then through a telepathic technology basically called writing, somebody else will have some version, run some version of it in their own mind. And if it's a fantasy novel and you're able to really have a participation mystique experience with a fantasy novel, you are filming a movie of a whole alternate world in your head. If you're able to do that, that's like Terrence said that, you know, not to have a psychedelic experience was as, as, as truncating as, as never to have had sex. Well, I think if you've never had a participation mystique experience with a work of fantasy literature where you've been able to create a complex movie in your own mind, that is also as fundamental a deprivation. And so um, fantasy stories, by the way, are the mainstream of literature. People forget that because snotty literary critic types want you to believe that only books about failed relationships are serious literature. And this fantasy stuff is like a subgenre. But what is the mainstream of literature? It's like Beowulf. It's, it's always been fantasy. And, um, you know, an example of the power of stories to seed reality is somebody wrote a book about ufology where he pointed out that every aspect of the, and I think maybe even Terrence talked about this too, of the ufological experience from specific types of abduction and so forth, you could always find a story published first before anybody ever reported that experience. Now, it doesn't mean that what happened to them wasn't real on some level, but maybe there's some way in which stories have to come first. And when, when we're... Another example okay. is uh, William Shatner came... They, they, their team came out to our place about seven, eight years ago and filmed a show called How William Shatner Changed the World. And it was really about how Star Trek changed the world. And it plays on the History Channel a lot, and it, it got nominated for an Emmy, I think. But they filmed, they shot me for two days. And uh, because nerds, Star Trek was such a powerful story machine that 
Shatner wrote this show and he argued that tons of technologies came out of this vision of cardboard and jelly beans and guys pulling doors, you know, um, and personal computing itself. And they beamed me in, in, a, in, in from our Cray supercomputer, which was designed by Seymour Cray, because Cray was a Trekkie, he made it look like Star Trek. So they beamed me up from within the uh, our Cray 1 in the barn, in the DigiBarn Computer Museum. And I'm holding the Altair 8800, uh, which is a blue box with switches on the front, hobbyist computer. It's called the Altair because Ed Roberts was sending one off for a magazine to cover, and the editor said, well, it has to have a name. It just can't be the mitts, whatever. And he was his daughter, he was in the next room, she said, I just watched this, you know, episode of Star Trek, and Sulu said, we're going back to Altair. You know, we're just there, now we're going back to Altair. And so, oh, we'll call it Altair. And nerds made the fMRI, I mean, the, you know, body scanners, nerds, that saw Star Trek episodes went on and Motorola to create the first cell phones. Uh, numerous, numerous examples of, of what that just filled the imagination and made all those conference phones and systems. You know, they, remember the three, the Trillium conference phone in, in the conference room in the Enterprise had three screens on it. It was a lovely thing. And Spock talking to the computer with voice and getting these, you know, caustic reaction or answers, and you know, all he was doing was looking at a blue light bulb in a covered hood, and and, and that that system could see, you know, in, into the planet and oxygen, whether or not life was there, and you know, all that became real. And one could argue, well, it would have otherwise, but the metaphors just infuse the culture of nerd kids in the 70s and nerd adults just infuse it and the dream and the desire to live in a high-tech home that and to have connectivity and all the people at xerox park and the apple and all these places just infused in the star trek culture and steve wozniak you know and all these people so gene rodberry and you mentioned uh, uh theodore sturgeon well one of the interesting things is his son is I'm working with their small startup company, his son, the son of Theodore Sturgeon, um, and they want to start up an ad agency. They're from the ad world to help alternative businesses get proper professional messaging. And one of the things I mentioned at their that was at their formation meeting in Ojai, and I said, yeah, if you guys can do that and also train these businesses to do subscription models, they'll get something called cash flow, which is essential as an energy component to creating economic power. You know, Burning Man has cash flow. And choose your businesses wisely because there's a lot of really woo-woo, really not well-run, and people that shouldn't be running business at all. But if those guys, they're, they're samurai. They're wanting to do a game-changing thing. Coming out using all the tools. They worked at Saatchi, and they worked at McCann Erickson. and They're real people. They come out. They can do professional-grade messaging, so you get off the YouTube homegrown thing, and you build a network, and they figure out how to do fulfillment. They figure out all this stuff, and they power up another economic grid, and they're just one piece of it. But it's a really important piece. Well, thank you. And, and I, I'm going to move toward 
concluding some of my points because I think we're running out of time. I know I've got a six o'clock dinner date and I'm sure you have to get somewhere too. But I've got a few more points about story and I'll conclude what I have to say with a, um, a story from Star Trek. But, uh, but Star Trek is particularly important because unlike so many other science fiction iterations, it's not dystopian. It's like who we could be if we tapped into the zero point energy and where there's no point in money anymore in Star Trek because you can just make so much stuff for free. What's the point? And, uh, um, and, and so it, it is particularly um, a healthy um, futuristic mythology unlike uh, many others. And so a couple more points about the, the fantasy meme is, first of all, when you, you know, life structure and story structure parallel each other. And it helps us to understand evil and darkness. Like if, if I ask you to be God and to create, say, a young person who's going to develop spiritually, you're not going to give them the perfect boyfriend, girlfriend, home, job, and the perfect economy and the perfect country because there's no story then. You have, to, you have to hurl challenges at them. You may have to create evil. What would, you know, the Lord of the Rings was about the changing of a whole cycle of ages, like the Iron Age to the Gold Age. Where would the Lord of the Rings be without Saruman, Sorin, Ringwraiths, and Orcs? It'd be hobbits going out on dates with other hobbits. There'd be a lot of contentment. There wouldn't be a whole lot of story there. And so, because stories are so crucial and are able to change people, as you so perfectly illustrated with Star Trek and change every aspect of society. If, if I were President of the United States, I'd take half or more of the Pentagon budget, turn it over to people like James Cameron, David Lynch, and so forth, to make gigantic, super expensive IMAX fantasy films, because I think healthy ones, you know, avatars and so forth, I think that will change culture more powerfully than anybody else. Movies are a dream delivery technology. They create mythologies. There's lots of crossover effects, some of them even paranormal. It's one of the few participation mystique experiences we have in our society. We go to this darkened place and have this uh, virtual life experience. But I'll end with um, an example of something, a mythologem from the Star Trek world, I think better than any other captures where we are and what we need to do to survive and to go forward. And it, it, I think it shows up in a couple of places, but one was in maybe the second or third Star Trek movie. And we see a, um, a beautiful young Vulcan woman with a shaved head and she's on a, a bridge and um, she's being uh, gunned down by basically by Klingons and the, the Enterprise is facing like a hopeless scenario with so many enemy ships and so forth with so much so much more firepower and she's desperately trying to reconfigure force fields and all that kind of stuff but ultimately the bridge just sort of blows up but then the smoke clears and the door is open and Admiral Kirk he's been promoted now um, <clears throat> steps forward and we realize this was a simulation and it was a specific simulation that every apprentice starship captain had to go through called the Kobayashi Maru, I think it was called. It was a no-win scenario. They wanted to see how you would respond to that stress. Well, the only one that ever solved the Kobayashi Maru was Captain Kirk. And what he did was he reprogrammed the simulation computer. Now, that's when you're getting into story, when you're getting into the source code of the matrix and you're ready to reprogram the simulation computer, that's when we're ready to, like, change our evolutionary situation from a precarious and pessimistic one to one where we have we can boldly go to where no man has ever gone before.
with that, John, Jonathan, Mr. Zap, Zap, uh, we we call you on the playa. Uh, free zaporacle.com free dream interpretation uh, this has been an incredible pleasure to finally meet you and finally do this absolutely spectacular enjoyable wide-ranging talk about subjects we both love and care about and it's just thank you so much and, and thank you uh, this is the premiere episode of uh, what I called mutant uh, mind meld it even had a Star Trek verb in there and um, I'll be hard pressed to ever come up with one that's any better than this because uh, if, if ever there was a Socratic dialogue that was a mind melt uh, that I've experienced this was, this was definitely way way up there so thank you so much Bruce so Dr. Bruce signing off here Burning Man will set the setting set and setting is Burning Man 2013 here at 915 and B and uh, we've just had a, an excursion, an adventure, a scene here like no other, and uh, it too is a, a mutant uh, on the planet and is part of the change, and boy is it an exciting time. Absolutely. This is Jonathan Zapp signing off here in Burning Man 2013. Thanks for joining us.